Hello and welcome to this week's panel edition of The Bunker. I am your host, Alex Andreu. On today's podcast, Parliament's out for summer and we review the government's report card, who gets an A star and who must repeat the year. Our special guest, Thangem de Bonaire, gives us a first-hand account of what being part of this mixed-media parliament was like. Are rich countries addicted to disposable personal protective equipment? And finally, no end of school year would be complete without a summer reading list. We look at politicians' book choices and what they reveal. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly roundtable edition of The Bunker, on which unparliamentary language not only goes unpunished, but is positively rewarded. Let's meet today's panel. First up, we have the journalist and author, Marie Leconte. Coucou, Marie. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm all right. Um, Marie, the government seems to be making up policy on who needs to isolate and who doesn't on a daily basis. There's annoyance at an app that is basically just doing its job in reflecting the high number of cases out there. Isn't this growing list of exemptions the equivalent of smashing the thermometer in the hope that it will lower your temperature? <laughs> um, slightly, I think. I don't know. I, I think I've got a few concerns about it. The first one being that, and that's purely anecdotal, but... Um, I knew of quite a lot of people who've just turned off the app entirely or who just turn it off before going indoors, basically, and meeting quite a lot of people. So I do think that, you know, in the slight defence of the government, they do have to find a way to make people effectively just not delete the app. But also my thing is why, again, you know, why have this ever-growing sort of like shopping list of jobs that mean that you don't have to self-isolate when instead, so we know on the 16th of August, uh, people who have been double vaccinated will be able to just not self-isolate if they get pinged and just do a test every morning, I think. Mm. Why, why not do that now? That strikes me as such a better... Like, if you're going to divide between people who should self-isolate and people who should not, it strikes me as so much more obvious to do... Well, people who've been double-jabbed and so are considerably less likely to catch COVID surely should be the ones doing daily testing as opposed to, oh, well, you know, you work in job X and it's a, it's a Tuesday, so you get to go out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, doubling our virtue signaling capacity, we have comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hey, Ahir. Hello. Ahir, the Olympics kicked off uh, officially on Friday to empty stadia with a muted ceremony, a strange new TV deal that means only two sports can be shown live at any one time. Um, plus the huge time difference, it's all left me quite indifferent. What are your impressions so far? Well, on the one hand, I've felt just very sorry for the people in Japan who desperately don't want this to be happening over there. And it seems a bit like the IOC is operating like a deeply inconsiderate flatmate hosting a house party at a deeply inopportune time. <laughs> uh, but uh, on the other hand, you know, I, I was kind of the same as you going into it. I was like... Ah, the Olympics, but it's not going to be the same. I do like watching it, but if you've not got the full stadia and everything. And then yesterday found myself getting more into Taekwondo than I thought humanly possible. <laughs> uh, so evidently something needed to pick up all of that emotional energy that I'd invested in the Euros. And uh, this is the thing to do it. Mm, well, good times for insomniacs, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Finally, we are borderline giddy to be joined this week by the Labour MP for Bristol West and shadow leader of the House of Commons, Thangham Debonair. Hello, Thangham. Welcome to the show. 
Hello, Alex. I'm just th- thinking about you being borderline giddy. That's made me very I happy. am. I am <laughs> often borderline giddy. <laughs> me too. Said. Me too. Thangam, last week your, your colleague Dawn Butler was kicked out of the Commons for calling Boris Johnson a liar. Shock. Um, on the floor of the House. What did you think? Well, I mean, Dawn's an experienced politician. She knew she knew that that was against the rules. But I think we all know that Boris Johnson tells lies. It's it's a well known fact. I think you know people in space know that Boris Johnson tells lies. He just says the first thing that comes into his head to get him out of any difficult situation. <laughs> you know, I mean, he is he is the yes, I, I think it is a, toddler. <laughs> it is a shock only to the women that have relationships with him. And, and, <laughs> good line. I mean, you know, I, I know toddlers who are much more honourable than Boris Johnson for telling the truth and facing up to the consequences consequences of their own actions. I mean, you, you, you can't get a straight answer from him on anything if he's under pressure, whether it's his wallpaper or whether or not he's looking after care homes. It's it's not a surprise that he tells lies in any way, shape or form. I think everyone mm. knows that. I think one of the more distressing aspects of all of this is that, unfortunately, an awful lot of people just seem to think it's priced in, that a prime minister, yeah, they lie, so what? And I find that really, really troubling. Um, because yeah, it's toxic, you know, isn't it? It's really toxic for the whole political, uh, just whole political world, not just for politicians. I don't, I don't really think there was a golden era in which everyone thought that we were um, perfectly honourable and never told fibs. I don't think that era existed where people thought that. I do like to think that there is a certain amount of honour amongst politicians and that most of us would try our best not to be telling untruths. Um, so, but I mean, with Boris Johnson, I think the evidence is just right in front of us. But considering this is a new era, are those rules created back then fit for purpose? Because they work if everyone essentially is making an effort to behave honourably. If one side decides to throw convention out the window, do they not become a shield for their impropriety? I don't think it's a terribly good shield because, as I said, I think pretty much everyone knows that Boris Johnson's a liar. I don't think that was news in any way, shape Mm. or form. I think that it is important to have uh, conventions and rules so that the House can operate effectively. And when the government's broken them, and they frankly have a lot lately, um, it's part of my role as shadow leader of the House of Commons, but also very Mm. much part of Speaker Lindsay Hoyle's role to pull them up short on it. And Lindsay's been quite shirty lately with with the government to to an extent that I've been quite uh, pleasantly surprised by um, because it has really irritated me when government ministers have got into a habit of, for instance, announcing things not to the House of Commons, but to to journalists. I mean, no disrespect to journalists. I know there's a lot of you on this call, but to, you know, you kind of are supposed to get put yourself under scrutiny, a scrutiny to uh, the House of Commons first. And Lindsay's been pretty shirty with him on those. Should the rules of the House of Commons change and be updated? Absolutely, definitely, positively. Should it be allowed for us just to call each other names? I'm not sure that's going to be terribly productive. I can think of lots of things that behind at my priority list than that particular one. I also think that, you know, there are ways of being able to raise concerns, questions, challenge to the government, including the Prime Minister, if we feel as parliamentarians that we have been unintentionally misled, to use the parliamentary jargon. The parliamentary session has finished and so MPs must leave the musty Commons offices and head back to the constituencies for the summer, dispersing up and down the country like the floating spores of the Westminster political fungus. But who, if anyone, has passed the year with flying colours? Who must try harder? Who needs a reset? And whose only hope is now Papa pulling some strings? Marie... How has Boris Johnson done? And I will split this into two grades, just because I think it's easy to grade him poorly as a prime minister, but more difficult to grade him as leader of the Conservative Party. 
Oh, well, I mean, that, I mean, that's a very good point. And I think um, grading him as prime minister is a lot easier because he's just not done that good a job. You know, I don't, I don't think that's um, very controversial for me to say. So, I mean, I have no idea. If you ever see, I didn't go uh, to school in this country. So I feel like in, in French grading, we'd probably go for something like eight out of 20, which I think translates quite well. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the pandemic has been a catastrophe. Um, and he sort of... Not Just really one did. grade above merde, isn't but, it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and still, actually, weirdly, a better grade than I got at my philosophy baccalaureate. So take, make of that what you will. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, the pandemic has been a disaster. But also, I think he's not managed to really do anything aside from that. Um, and he keeps sort of, you know, just about getting away uh, with stuff that people should not be getting away with, especially not senior politicians. Then in terms of it, and I think I find that more interesting in terms of leader of the Conservative Party, that is quite a tough one. Because on the one hand, you know, he is still that like, the Conservative is still polling very well. Um, and that is, you know, that is what Tory MPs would be looking to, I think, uh, to decide whether they're still happy with Boris or not. So, yes, somehow, you know, the Tories are still riding high in the polls. So that's good. But that being said, I if I were him, if I were number 10, I would worry about the fact that Boris keeps of like angering pockets of Conservative MPs to so be that, you know, on the foreign aid cuts, on, you know, on building more houses, on sort of on kind of every issue he's managed to completely alienate a pocket of Conservative MPs instead of trying to work with them or, you know, the normal politics of kind of mm. having the whips mm. work behind the scenes, etc. So kind of, you know, having all those MPs feeling quite betrayed and ignored. Obviously, you know, nothing has happened because of that so far. But I think that, you know, and we know as well, that, you know, every sort of like parliamentary academic will tell you that once MPs rebel once, um, they are considerably more likely to rebel again. So that the first bit of rebelling is actually the most important one. So yeah, I would be quite worried actually about all those MPs, you know, they've pissed off on a number of different issues, perhaps coming together, you know, to form a proper sort of opposition inside the government um, at some point mm. in the next parliamentary session. So probably still just about a kind of, 12 out of 20, I think, um, as Tory leader. I hear uh, the polls have moved against Johnson on two occasions. We're just experiencing the beginning of the second one. The first was last year after he was seen to protect Dominic Cummings, who broke the rules. The second seems to correspond to his attempt to circumvent the rules after being asked to isolate. Is that a simplistic reading or is there a pattern beginning to emerge? I think that if there is a pattern, it's the pattern of us living through, you know, quote unquote, unprecedented times TM, meaning that there's been a very long standing thing of, well, I don't know what I would do in that person's position or anyone in that position would be finding it difficult and no one could do this well. Uh, right. And I think that that's why probably the needle doesn't get moved so much on the procurement of PPE and uh exactly when you time lockdowns and what have you, because as a layperson, generally speaking, you're like, well, I don't really know. And this is all quite complicated. And maybe there is a reason for things that I'm not um, clocking. Whereas with stuff like the Cummings thing and trying to circumvent rules on self-isolation and uh, things like that that do seem to have moved the needle, those seem to be the things which are maybe they're just more human things, right? Where people can quite easily put themselves in the shoes of the people in charge, particularly considering what we have been asked to do by those people and think to themselves, oh, no, actually, I definitely wouldn't have done it this way. Or this definitely is a bad way to do that. Uh, and I think that that's, that's probably the thing that gets the cut through. Thangham, mm, mm. um, how would you grade Keir Starmer? You must have been in a job where you do 360 feedback. <laughs> 
I have had 360 feedback done on me. Now you've got me thinking. I wonder. I can't remember what the piece of 360 feedback that I had last said about me. Anyway, you asked me about Keir. I think Keir's done a really good job in very difficult circumstances. And I think that the fact that he has a phenomenal work ethic, he, he has a brain the size of a planet, but also is a very, very good man, absolutely steeped in labour values. I think that's been shining out of every single thing that he's done. I think that he set himself some tough targets in the first year to deal with the anti-Semitism, which was plaguing our party, deal with backlogging complaints, which has really cost us dearly. And he's had to deal with all sorts of things to do with how you how you become a leader of the opposition in the middle of a locked down parliament. Um, I think that in the last few weeks, you'd seen some really great PMQs uh, mm. where the public response has been great, as well as the response in the chamber. And it is a weird time. It's a very weird time. Yeah, well, Labour seems to be hardening its stance a little bit away from this is a crisis, so we must be collegiate and towards saying you're doing the right thing, but doing it wrong. Has the government's sort of unfailing ability to cock everything up removed some of the peril of opposing their approach? Because you know that sooner or later it will go wrong. And so... Um, it's well, fairly safe to predict. And we've been opposing a lot of what they did for quite some time now. I mean, right back in, in April last year when I took over as Shadow Housing Secretary, I was opposing their approach on how they were treating private renters and I was fairly bold about it. Um, we opposed their approach of ignoring the July um, medical report on what was coming up in autumn and winter. We opposed the fact that they seemed to be ignoring it. Uh, we had all sorts of things last summer over exams and school uh, exam results and university entrance uh, where we were very clearly in completely different places from the government. So I think we've been doing that a while. And I think at the moment, um, you know, unfortunately, sadly, gives me no pleasure to say that a lot of the things that we warned them about did subsequently come to pass. And my concern is, of course, that that's people's lives and livelihoods that are at risk Mm. if the government continues to ignore what are not just our warnings, but actually other people's warnings as well. Mm. Marie, how important is the Labour Party conference in September for Starmer? I mean, is it a nice to have uh, a good performance under his belt or are we in make or break territory? Um, I'd actually sort of go further than that in that I think it's very important for the Labour Party in general because the Labour Party, I think more than any other party, just really likes arguing. You know, that's arguably what it does best. And it's not really been able to do that for a very long time because of the pandemic, because of lockdowns, etc. And I think we've kind of seen that through, you know, Twitter, just like Labour Twitter, just becoming more and more vicious somehow. So I think putting all those people <laughs> in the same place to actually have it out, you know, and, and agree you know, and argue and eventually perhaps agree or disagree on policy, on the direction of travel, etc., I think will be vital for the party. But also, again, yeah, obviously it will be big for care as well. I mean, you know, I do think that quite a lot of people who were very, very enthusiastic um, about him at the start are now actually a bit like, nah, okay, you know, he's doing just about okay, but could be doing better. And a lot of people who were already a bit sceptical but kind of willing to give him a chance just do not like him. So, so, so no, I, I do think, you know, actually, if, if I were here, I'd probably be a bit, not necessarily worried about Labour conference, but aware of the fact that, you know, that is probably going to be quite a big thing and potentially, as you said, kind of like narrative changing. I hear, how about Rishi Sunak? He's mm. still one of the most popular politicians in the country, but his ratings are definitely sliding. Uh, are, are there a few B's and C's creeping into the straight A student card? I mean, I think that if, you know, if you and I were sat opposite one another at a table 
And I started putting down five pound notes and carrying on putting down five pound notes uh, while fixing you directly in the eye. I think that I would probably become increasingly popular as that pile of five pound notes got higher. And the second that it stopped, uh, some real questions might be asked about, for example, why I wasn't giving any of those five pound notes to the obviously hungry child in the corner. And that's the sort of situation that I think that we're going to find ourselves in increasingly over the time where once again, uh, we will be told that difficult decisions TM uh, have to be made. A lot of the decisions that are going to have to be made will prove and probably quite justifiably considerably less popular than just shoving a fuck ton of cash into everyone's mouths. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's not going to be that's not going to be that popular. But I think that the uh, some of the more big ticket items that Sonak has been able to come up with has really masked quite how shit the Treasury has been during a lot of this. And now that furlough's tapering off and what have you, that's going to come increasingly to the fore. Yes, I think uh, for the first time in the past couple of weeks, I've seen uh, quite a few pieces in traditionally government-supportive papers saying we have pumped a lot of money into people who didn't deserve it. Considering backbenchers and party members dislike for lockdowns, is his anti-lockdown reputation clever positioning for a future leadership bid? I don't know. I I would think that he sort of actually believes it, right? Because wasn't he was the one who brought the sort of Oxford academics who were against lockdowns into Downing Street, I believe, anyway, I, I might be wrong on that. And if you go back further, for example, like he was very strongly tipped as a high riser under Cameron's uh, Conservative Party, but still went to back leave uh, in spite of that. Whereas I suppose the thing from a, you know, keep your head down and keep uh, getting promotions thing to do would probably have just been to throw his weight in with Remain. So mm. perhaps, perhaps these are just the things that he thinks. Yeah, so maybe he's not positioning. Maybe he's actually rotten. Um, Thangam, Pretty Patel has had a pretty terrible year. I make no apologies. It's a terrific <laughs> that was pun. so bad. It's a terrific pun. No apologies. Lo- as, a, as a professional comedian, I would love for you to make an apology, actually. <laughs> From the response to the Sarah Everard... Uh, memorial to a report saying she had come up woefully short in the way she treats her staff, from a slew of awful hostile proposed legislation to the Police Federation just last week passing a motion of no confidence. Why is she still in post? What qualities do you, as someone in closer quarters, see or can guess that Johnson sees that I just don't? Well, I can't see them myself. If I was, I really can't, and I've made a quite a close and personal study of Pretty, because uh, I, I look at her with bafflement sometimes. I mean, certainly my constituents just think she's absolutely dreadful. Um, my constituents think every time she opens her mouth, she does dreadful things to refugees and asylum seekers that have a legal right to be here, and, and I'm with them. And but in I think, fairness, she does. And in fairness, she does. So, you know, I, I, I'm with my constituents here, but she's obviously popular with some people. Now, one of those people appears to be the Prime Minister, but you know how it is. Prime Ministers tend not to sack people that they think might plot against them from the backbenches. And we've certainly seen that, you know, he's brought Sajid back, hasn't he? Because uh, Sajid looked like he might be able to do more damage from the back than on the front benches. I sometimes wonder what people have on each other that keeps them in jobs that they are 
self-evidently unfit for. And I think from annoying the police to bringing forward legislation that the police already know they can't possibly enforce, to being brutal about a very small number of people that are really not the reason that our immigration system is grinding to a halt, Mm. um, to any number of other failures. But really, the fact that she was found guilty of bullying and Boris Johnson still just sat there and said, no, it's fine. This is a very odd way to allow a minister, of, one of the highest ministries of state, to operate. It's a very bizarre way of running a yes, country. It's a very strange signal to the rest of the country. It is, but well. it, it, it just feels like a bit of that, you know, the same as, as Rishi with the, and, and Boris just sort of, they were going to dodge the the, the, um, the quarantine. And then they, they, they realised two hours and 38 minutes later that that would look a little bit hypocritical, just a tad, do you think? She's got a similar quality, that she just seems mm. to be able to slough it off, doing things that nobody else would get away with and I do find it really astonishing and says a lot about Boris Johnson as a leader. Marie, there's then another category of cabinet student this year. The ones have kept their head down and became sort of invisible. I'm thinking of Dominic Raab here. To call him anonymous is to oversell his impact, I think. Is he basically just aiming for a pass just because nobody will remember him? (laughs) I think so. So I think it's actually been quite interesting. So when you look back to when this cabinet was announced, you know, you did have those people like Liz Truss and Dominic Raab who were announced and were actually quite controversial appointments. And we thought, you know, these would be the ones at the kind of forefront of the culture wars. And, you know, we'll kind of see them front, back and centre and generally probably being quite horrible. When they've, yeah, that they've flown completely under the radar and I think have been quite clever actually in a way um, and even actually I think yeah obviously Dominic Robert Listras is kind of my favorite I think of this genre because as you know the country sort of like tears itself apart over you know the kind of post-Brexit sort of you know landscape and the pandemic and so on then you sort of kind of hard cut to Listras going and we now have a trade deal with Indonesia <laughs> and it's I like, know, oh, it's thank, like you. A... thank you <laughs> I'm just like... for you it's like she jets around the world posing for a knitwear catalogue. <laughs> well, exactly. The ministerial, the ministerial equivalent. Uh, I hear. Should I even ask you to mark Gavin Williamson? I mean, picking picking oh. on him feels increasingly like bashing a hollow piñata that has long since run out of sweets. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, he's probably the principal example of what uh, Dungan was speaking about earlier, about what do these people have on one another? And Because the, the only explanation I can mm. think of for that man being anywhere near the levers of anything, right, be it, you know, power or a car window, uh, is the fact that he was a <laughs> chief whip. Um, and so it, it, it must be due to that, right? It's not exa- like I like to believe that uh, all people, even if they're bad at a particular thing, there must be a thing that they're good at. But like my mate once checked up the company's house records of the fireplace company he used to have, and it wasn't a good fireplace company, not a very successful fireplace company. He's not even good at that. Come on, mate. <laughs> Tangum. If I forced you to name one government frontbencher who has had a good year, who would it be? Well, I'm, I'm Come on. I'm really, Dig really deep. struggling. <laughs> because, I mean, you know, you, you, Find you, something you know, kind to say about kind to say about one of them. I'm looking, I'm doing a mental run along the front bench, the treasury bench. I just can't see it. I mean, Liz Truss is basically a joke. Boris Johnson, everyone knows he's a hypocrite and a liar. Uh, Dominic Raab doesn't know what 0.7% means. Because if he did, he'd know that when the gross <laughs> national income goes down, so does the percentage. That's why they call it a percentage. 
you know, they all need to go to maths class. They all need to go to geography class. They all need to go to just learning how to run the country class. And also just working out what does the Northern Ireland protocol actually mean? And why did you decide you were going to sign it if you always had your fingers crossed behind your back at the time? This is, I find it really difficult to find even one. And to be fair, I know that in the last Tory government, I could always think of some front benches who I thought were doing a decent, honourable job, even if it was on different terms to my own. And I'm really struggling. I'm really mm. genuinely struggling. I mean, I do have quite a lot of fun with Jacob Rees-Mogg, my opposite number. Um, but well, I will ask you about Jacob Rees-Mogg <laughs> later, don't you? Okay. <laughs> Marie, last week you released your latest book, Honourable Misfits, which provides a history of Britain's truly weird MPs. Would any of the current crop make that grade? Well, I mean, I regret to say that, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg is the first person who springs to mind. Um, <laughs> not to make it sort of, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg-themed episode. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I know absolutely, you know, from his general demeanour, the way he dresses, the, what was it, he was trying for a while to get his constituency in a different time zone, I think. Uh, I believe he always keeps Cadbury eggs, uh, like sort of like Easter egg mini Easter eggs in his pockets, because that's one of the only things he eats. Um, oh, it's endless. I it's didn't endless. know yeah. that. I did not know that, and I'm I not sure I that. want to know that. Oh yes, no, it's quite odd. In a previous life, long before the Brexit referendum, when he was just a very eccentric bagbencher, I actually saw quite a lot of him as a diary reporter, and uh, and yeah, and actually he was sort of like quite fun at the time. I heckled him when he spoke in public, and so on. And obviously, you know, everything went catastrophically downhill I think at some point in 2016 can't remember what happened uh but there you go oh god (laughs) finally Sangam um to finish on a high give us hope for the future which of the new intake of MPs in any party has really impressed you who do you think will burst forth in the 21-22 session and make us all pay attention again you know, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say I'm still caught up in sadness at the good ones we lost in the 2019 general election, mm. uh, where we lost some absolutely stellar MPs from both sides, you know, David Hanson, Alistair Burr on that side. Now, I, I could think of loads of really good MPs who are sadly not with us anymore for one reason or another. And so I'm, I'm still too caught up in the sadness, I'm afraid. And the difficulty of telling you who are the stellar new MPs is we've barely seen each other. I mean, we had the general election, Brexit got done, and on the day Brexit got done, we we had the first diagnosed case of COVID and it's kind of been everyone went home and then we've been sort of semi-virtual, semi-hybrid, semi-locked in our offices ever since. So I find it really difficult to give a fair hearing to that question because mm-hmm. most of the new MPs, I mean, I'm still sort of just working out who they are. I know who they are in theory, but when they stand up in the chamber and say something, I'm like, who on earth are you? Because um, we have, just haven't seen them, haven't had a chance to get to know them. I'm looking forward to that. I'm, but I am looking forward to that changing. It's been a very strange year. I, I'm Personally, I've valued being back in actual Parliament, but there's no denying the social distancing rules have meant that we just don't bump into each other and have chats. You know, even the chairs in the tea room were two metres apart for most of the last year. So you can't have a discreet chat with someone two metres apart in the mm. House of Commons tea room. And so I'm reserving judgment till we get back in September when I hope I'll be able to get to know them all. Tangham, how strange has this session been with people on Zoom screens and the Prime Minister losing sound in the middle of PMQs? Will you be happy to see the back of this mixed media parliament or has it actually in some ways 
made access on the whole better for MPs, you know, MPs who may have commitments with family or their constituencies hundreds of miles away? That is, there's so much in that question, Alex. I'm going to unpack <laughs> a few things at first. Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah. yeah. So first off, good that it happened. Salute the staff who made it happen in a phenomenally quick time. I mean, you're always told as an MP that the House Commons changes very, very slowly. Well, I can tell you after last year, we know that it can change fast when it wants to. And it did need to, so it did. And we were able to do hybrid and virtual and proxy voting and all the rest of it very, very quickly in in, in an institution that's basically set in the, in the 19th century, roughly. It missed out the 20th century and leapt forward to a point in the 21st century. So, yes, it was good that we could do it. Is it as good for scrutiny? Definitely not. I mean, mm. it's it's not as good because backbenchers can't just stand up in the middle of a front bench speech and go, hang on a minute, point, you know, not point of order, uh, will you give way? And actually try and challenge a minister on a particular point. And I think that means that we are not able to scrutinise the executive as effectively. I think we've done a reasonably good job, but it's pretty hard when you can't do it in the room as effectively as you would normally. I think it's pretty hard when you know that government backbenchers are just basically dialing in with a pre-prepared speech and they haven't listened to our front bench. They probably haven't listened to their own front bench and they're certainly not going to stick around to wind-ups to see how the whole thing gets brought together. I don't think that scrutiny works as well without politicians being able to talk to each other, but I'm incredibly grateful to the people who made it happen. I don't think we've seen the end of it. And the reason Mm. I think that is because, first off, let's just look around us at the figures. Uh, You know, it's not going away anytime soon. And we saw just in the last week of PMQs how somebody gets pinged by the app and you can tinker with the app all you like. Someone's still going to get pinged by it and eventually it'll be another MP. You know, are we really saying that someone who isn't sick but does need to isolate can't represent their constituents even on a very basic level? And I think we'll probably find the answer to that is no. And then Mm. Keir Starmer got effectively pinged that afternoon because his his son was diagnosed as as, as COVID positive. You know, so are we really going to just pretend that we can't have a parliament where a healthy prime minister and a healthy leader of the opposition who've been asked to isolate can't perform in parliament? I'm not sure we're going to do that. And I think backbenchers would have difficulty with that too. Your current portfolio is to shadow Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yes. Um, what is that like? Oh, well, I mean, I have to say, let, let whisper it who dares. I think this is one of the best portfolios to have because you're across <laughs> everything. You can poke around in all sorts of bits of things to do a parliamentary process if you're interested in that sort of thing. And frankly, I am. because I think, you know, our constitution, unwritten and, and peculiar and contradictory though it is, it's a thing of beauty if you look at it from one angle, but from another angle, it's well overdue for reform. And, you know, this job is very much getting involved in the nuts and bolts of that. Um, opposing and scrutinising the government on what they put in front of us as parliamentarians. That's basically my job, you know, which is an extraordinary privilege to be able to look at the parliamentary week, the parliamentary month and say to Jacob in front of an audience of, well, I don't know, not that many MPs, but hopefully some people are watching from home. What are you doing about this? Why haven't you scheduled time for that? Where's the where's the emergency debate on climate change? You know, all of those things that are missing. So nobody can say they're not being held to account for what they're putting in front of us as parliamentarians. That's the major bit of the job that's public facing that and the fact that I get to speak on pretty much anything I want as long as it's to do with the timetable each week every week which is a great privilege but the other stuff's also really interesting about how we make sure that the House of Parliament are a good place to work for staff there's thousands of staff on the estate 
And, you know, how are we going to make sure as we come back from the pandemic that it's really safe, it's really a place where health and safety are properly um, appreciated and integrated? And the responsibility as one of the commissioners for a world, UNESCO World Heritage Site, you know, that responsibility makes me feel slightly nervous, especially as Liverpool lost its status last week. I'm looking at, you know, a whole load of things to do with how we look after the estate for future generations and make it more accessible for the public who I think have got a right to be there and to see us and scrutinise us, scrutinising them. How are we going to make sure that that happens over the next sort of however long I get in this job? It's all very interesting. But scrutinising Jacob is a really interesting facet. Yes. Sangam, can really? I just uh, can I just ask that if you um, do you ever worry that if you weren't shadowing Jacob Rees-Mogg that he wouldn't cast a shadow? <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> he does have it. There is a quality about him, isn't it? Is, you, you can sort of quite easily see him uh, appear in a in a puff of smoke at a Christmas, <laughs> claiming your firstborn. Do you know what I hear? I, I'm just thinking, I don't think Jacob and I have ever met in daylight. I mean, outside. <laughs> uh, we, we've met in, in his office, so he's never offered me a cream egg, and I'm now going to ask him. <laughs> I genuinely don't think we've met outside in sunlight. I'm going to experiment with this. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious, are opponents who use this veneer of politesse actually quite difficult to handle? Do the parliamentary rules that we're talking about, do they favour that kind of slipperiness? Hmm. Good question. And I think upon it night and day because I do wake up every morning thinking, I wonder what Jacob's doing right now, because that's my job is to try and, you know, think about what he's doing and try and scrutinise him. and poll- Eating a cream him. egg, so, evidently. Now I know yeah. it. Yeah. But I mean, I, I like people to be polite. I think it's perfectly possible to disagree vehemently and still be polite. And Jacob, so far in the time I've been shadowing him, has definitely disagreed with me vehemently and been polite with me. And I think I have disagreed with him vehemently and been polite so i think it's possible you have to watch out because Mm. yes i I mean i've never known him in a private meeting he is never anything other than courteous so you do have to remind yourself you know he may be courteous to you but you're still going to disagree i genuinely think that working as jacob's opposite number has been a really good masterclass in how you can disagree politely and strongly all at the same time Uh, One of the criticisms levelled at Labour at the moment is that they lack a political narrative, a story, a clear thing to tell the voters. What do you think that should be? Well, you know, I think I hear this, but I also know that for the last hundred odd years, the Labour Party's enduring values remain relevant. I mean, sadly, in some ways, we are still needed as much as we ever were to make sure that we are improving the conditions of working people through parliamentary means. It's literally there in our constitution. That's what we're for. Now, how that has to be realised, of course, that varies not just from decade to decade or even century to century, but from year to year. And particularly given whatever policies we had in the last general election, we've had a whole pandemic since then and and, and a recession. Now, we're going to need to rethink some of the ways we illustrate those values. But I think our story, our story for me is still as powerful as ever, which is we're here to be on people's side. We think that the world's a better place when it's a fairer place and everyone gets to realise their full potential. We think that people deserve good and safe working conditions. Most people want to be able to have fairly fairly similar things. Most people want their kids to be able to go to a good school, their house to be decent and affordable to heat and live in, to be able to have a holiday in the summer and, and maybe a couple of weekend breaks in spring and autumn, to be able to buy their kids nice Christmas presents or whatever the equivalent is for them, and you know to be able to live a decent life and look forward to that continuing 
continuing into future generations. You overlay now the fact we've got climate change and we've had our first experience of a big health pandemic, unfortunately, probably not our last. And Labour's got to work out how we navigate those other two big competing disaster movies to tell our story in a way that works for these times. And I think when we're maybe probably a couple of years out from a general election, what we most need to be doing more of is telling that good story of how we are on people's side. We do think it's wrong that people, a lot of people don't feel safe at home or on the streets. We think it's wrong that a lot of people are worried about the future and want a decent job and that we think we've got good ideas about how we can solve those problems. And, mm. you know, we've won some elections recently, by the way. We've won some, some, some tough ones. We've taken seats off the Tories in a couple of areas, including Jacob's own. And, you know, I I like to think he's worried. I interviewed Dan Jarvis recently, and he thinks that Labour have to embrace an authentic love of country, a sort of progressive yes. patriotism. I agree. I agree. Do you feel there is room inside nations of patriotism, as they exist at the moment, for politicians of mixed ethnic heritage like you? I do. And I love that you've asked me that question because it's one I've challenged myself on for many, many years in that you can you can love core values of a place, the physical beauty of a place, your experience of the people of the place, and at the same time be extremely critical of aspects of its history. I'm managing to do both all at the same time. Um, I was educated in this country and I had a really good education. I've been able to watch my nephews and nieces grow up under various different governments, different colours, and see times when they've been good and times when they've been bad, but also seeing enduring human qualities um, which are present in this country because we value democracy and the rule of law. Um, you know, I think though it's possible to love those and command them as a part of patriotism for your own political party and at the same time be able to say, do you know what, colonialism and this country and my own city's history with slavery, they were bad. That doesn't mm. make me less of a patriot to be able to point that out. I think it makes me a better patriot because it means that I'm looking at it clearly and going, a country can do bad things and still be a country with values worth fighting for. The Tories are increasingly using what I term Trojan horse legislation. Yeah. So these huge statues which contain some very dangerous provisions and some highly desirable ones. And one example is the policing bill that contains a draconian curtailment of the right to protest, but also, for instance, longer sentences for domestic abusers, an issue in which I know you have written ex- extensively and feel passionately about. How tough is it politically to unpick that, to not end up in a situation where they can tell you in a year's time, well, you voted against tougher sentences for domestic abusers? Well, I mean, they're doing it already. And, you know, so I don't have to wait till next year to experience that toughness. It's already happening. I mean, it, it's it's clever politics, but it's it's fairly basic, you know, fisticuffs of, you know, I'm going to cuff you with the left with something absolutely dreadful that I know you can't support. And then I'm going to cuff you on the right with something that you should be supporting and you're not going to because of the thing on the other side. They're doing that, I think, in lots of bills. Um, I think that's where, as a Labour Party, you know, it's our job to be able to point out that this thing over here is so bad that even though this thing over here is something we want, we're going to have to vote against it. That's what we've been trying to do. I mean, we're going to need to get better and better at it, in my view, because I think they're going to keep using that tool. It is a dastardly political tool and it really hurts. We depend on it for our personal safety, but is personal protective equipment destroying the planet? Back in March, The Guardian reported that disposable plastic PPE had added 1% to the UK's carbon budget over the course of the pandemic, the equivalent of 600 tonnes of carbon emissions per day. 
Beyond littered waterways, endless problems around procurement have exposed how labor exploitation in developing countries permeates the NHS's existing supply chains. So how can we make PPE more environmentally and ethically sustainable? Tom Dawson is the concept founder of Revolution Zero, which produces zero-carbon, zero-waste targeted PPE. Hi, my name's Tom Dawson. I'm a clinician, medical technologist, and the concept founder of Revolution Zero. The provision of PPE in 2021 is not fit for purpose. It's not sustainable economically. Uh, It's not sustainable socially. Um, There are issues with modern-day slavery. It's not sustainable environmentally. The impact of PPE on the environment has been immense, Um, specifically if we look at a common example, which is disposable face masks. Disposable face masks are used at the rate currently in the world of around 3 million per minute. That equates to one double-decker bus in weight of disposable masks every 72 seconds. These are either go into landfill, they're incinerated, or they end up as pollutants. And an obvious one there is going into the oceans, where they've been found on reefs, around fish, uh, and there's been multiple reports of them ending up as microfibers in marine ecosystems. So we sought out with lofty ambitions to create a PPE solution that was zero waste, zero carbon, and by definition had to be circular. And when we say circular, that means the resource stays in the system. Considerations around the low carbon or zero carbon target really has to look at keeping things as local as possible. So keeping the production of the PPE manufacturer as close to where it's being used. And that doesn't matter whether it's in the UK or whether it is in Western Africa. We're very interested in taking our work and applying it to lower and middle income countries where they don't have as much control over their PPE supply. So providing autonomous solutions in those areas where they have a reusable PPE inbuilt laundry service where they can reuse it Uh, and potentially even recycling services that are local, uh, one of the things that we're looking at in the longer term. One of the key features of COVID, which is maybe not properly addressed and accepted by the full community early on, is that it is airborne. We do know that ventilation and face masks all help prevent the transmission and the spread. As we're now used to wearing face masks, uh, it makes perfect sense for us to continue wearing face masks to live with COVID. We don't have to wear them all the time, but certainly in enclosed spaces. So I, I, I believe that we need to look for sustainable and effective solutions, importantly. So the m- more effective it can be, the more comfortable, the more usable it can be, but also applying circular principles, which means it's used, reused, repurposed and recycled, uh, we can get some really great outcomes for us to live with COVID and also stimulate local economies. Marie, doesn't learning to live with COVID mean finding long-term ways to make sustainable PPE? Isn't that part of it? 
Oh, absolutely. And also, I think, you know, it's, it's not just about COVID. There may be, you know, I'm normally quite an optimistic person by nature, but also we have no idea there may be something else, you know, another pandemic kind of just around the corner or in 5, 10, 15 years, this may happen again. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And as a side note as well, I actually, I'm weirdly, yeah, I have been thinking about this recently because I went swimming in the sea in Brighton the other week, which was delightful. Uh, however, while swimming in the sea, I swam past three masks which was such a sort of like disheartening experience, just having a lovely time on the beach and going, nope, no, I have to swerve again and swerve again. So that's clearly, you know, the littering even just of uh, PPN masks is a massive issue. But yeah, mm. no, no. So sh- short answer is absolutely, because again, you know, it's probably not just going to be COVID. Let's be realistic. Tangam, has COVID been useful in a way in highlighting existing problems in NHS procurement? Oh, goodness. I think it's been ex- it's been useful for highlighting where warning signs were ignored. And I think that, you know, the, the bit about procuring PPE, there was a warning about that in the um, pandemic uh, simulation exercise, which happened in, I think, 2016. Yeah. And there was a warning about that. Now, what, what that says to me isn't just that there's a problem in the procurement. There's a problem when government ministers just don't take notice of warnings about preparedness. I mean, Marie's right. I think we are going to at least run the risk of another pandemic. And if we don't get things about procurement right, um, that will affect not just our health, but also our economy because there was an awful lot last year, as well as trust in politics. If you think about the impact, the corrosive impact, that there's even the suspicion that Matt Hancock might have been involved in contracts going to the wrong people, shall we say, just the suspicion of it. I think that gives a really nasty smell to this idea that, of course, we need to do whatever we need to do, that phrase that we kept hearing last year. But should it really be at the expense of doing the right thing, of not fiddling things, of, of treating the planet like a disposable, like a, like a dustbin? I'm really sad that the the, the masks, as as, as Marie has said, you know, they are everywhere. And that speaks to two things which just haven't changed, which one of which is about littering and another which is about just use stuff that is only going to be used once. It is possible to get, I think, PPE manufactured better so that, you know, is it possible, sorry, is a question, to get PPE manufactured better so that less of it needs to be disposable? Um, you know, I, I sewed my own, but then I'm that kind of gal. And you wouldn't have wanted to do surgery in them, but they were certainly effective. They were three-ply and they had inserts that could be put in them for when I was on a bus. And then I could take them home and wash them. And I'm really disappointed that we haven't sort of taken our, our understanding of what this pandemic needed and said, how can we translate that into what the world's going to carry on needing when we get out of it, which is tackling waste, um, to helping with nature and biodiversity and sticking masks in the sea is certainly not going to help that. I, I hear, does that mean COVID deniers and anti-face mask people are the, are environmentally friendly? Are we the bad guys? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I quite often see Piers Corbyn on the tube because I think he lives near me. Uh, and, I'm so uh, sorry I'm, for you. Uh, well, no, I'm wearing no. a mask and he isn't, but then also he's a climate change denier and I'm not. So I think that on balance, maybe they work out. Yeah. (laughs) Swings and roundabouts. You're a poet and you know it. According to the results of a survey undertaken by the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society, forced to abandon politics for writing, just under half of MPs would end up being poets. Only 11% would be journalists. I hear... 
Does this surprise you? Have you long suspected that Priti Patel is really a sensitive soul, longing for rhythm and scansion? Uh, Alex, if if you believe that uh, being a poet precludes you from having deeply right wing <laughs> politics, then I would encourage you never to look into the biography of any poet you've ever. <laughs> Tangham, what would your poetry collection be called? Oh, do you know what? I am not mad keen on poetry, but I will confess to you now that in the worst of the last few years, I did start planning and writing drafts of a novel called Murder in the Whip's Office for therapeutic purposes. It will never see the light of day. I want to read it more than I have ever wanted to read anything. Well, Hang interesting, I'm not... <laughs> How much, really? how much, how much, name your price, we'll have a fundraiser. Let's crowdfund it here. It was very therapeutic and I'm now in an office at the back of the speaker's chair in the, in the main palace of Westminster that's got four doors, one of which is actually a fake door, it's really a bookcase, one of which looks like a bookcase, it's actually a door, and the other leads to a corridor to the speaker's quarters. So you can imagine that the second murder in my novel has now got a location with clever door exits to leave from without anybody knowing who the murderer is. Fair enough, <laughs> let's not ask that. Any more questions about her novel that's obviously about Gavin Williamson killing someone <laughs> with a cream egg in the library? <laughs> Marie, do you think this longing for poetry speaks to how constrained our politicians are nowadays in having to toe such strict lines issued by central command that they, they dream of being altogether unchained from prose? <laughs> Um, I think and I really hope there are no um, poets listening to this, but um, I don't know. I feel like when people tell me they want to write poetry, I'm assuming they're just having a bit of a breakdown. You know, it, it kind of feels to me like, oh, no, I want to write poetry. It seems like, you know, I just want to be in a field, like in a farm somewhere by myself, maybe near a little stream. You know, so there's just people who are not doing well. Again, my apologies to anyone who may be a poet listening to this. I, I'm sure you're not having a breakdown. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think I think that that just worries me really about the mental state of half of MPs. At the same time, the now traditional MP summer reading, reading list is out. Do the choices reveal much about the person or are they focus grouped to death? I hear Rishi Sunak chose 12 Yards by Ben Littleton, which is all about the psychology of taking a penalty kick. Is he getting ready right. for a shootout? Uh, well, I, do, I, I don't know how good Rishi would be at uh, Penn. I, I know that Rashford, Saka and Sancho uh, would feel bad for themselves, but I don't think that they could have done any better if they were wearing their England shirts over a shirt and tie with the tag still on the shirt. <laughs> so I think that um, I think that those boys did us proud and Rishi could learn a lot more from them than they could from him. Marie, Boris Johnson rather self-consciously chose Scoop by Evelyn Waugh. Escape is more research. Yeah, I, I think he's named it several times as his favourite book, one of his favourite books, which I, I just find quite annoying because it's always like, oh, does that mean he's quite self-aware? Does this mean Boris is a character, the real person? So I'm basically not acknowledging it. Like, it just annoys me a lot that he's picked that book. So that's it. That's my answer. I'm just not. I'm refusing to engage with it. <laughs> <laughs> Tangham, um Wendy Chamberlain, Lib Dem Whip, has chosen Ann Tyler's Ladder of Years. Its tagline reads, who hasn't thought for a moment what it might be like to just walk away from their life? I mean, surely, of all jobs in Parliament, Lib Dem Whip 
is currently <laughs> one of the easier. <laughs> By 9.15 every morning, you've completed your ring around and established that, yes, everyone still agrees. <laughs> oh, God. That's, I think that really is a warning to us all. Be very, very careful about what book you admit that you're reading over summer because somebody somewhere is going to be able to find something that they can gently tease you about slash mock you for. And I'm afraid to say, yes, that is, that's kind of an open goal for her, isn't it? I'm sure she's reading something else as well. Do you like do you like the tradition of the reading list? Is it useful to get a chance to speak on something other than partisan issues? Oh, well, personally, I always enjoy speaking about both partisan issues. I'm fully partisan. I'm a fully paid up member of the Tribal Labour Party. Um, but I also think we've all got more to say than just that. And one of the weird things about when you're asked for what book you'll be reading over the summer holiday, and by the way, nobody has yet uh, asked me, or if they did, I forgot to answer, is that um, you've got so much potential for it to be read into and for someone to read some sort of hidden message. And then also, what if you forget to read it and they ask you about it the next time they interview you? So I I've tended to steer clear of actually putting on record what I'm going to read. <laughs> so don't ask me. <laughs> what what book would you recommend to Jacob rees to bro- broaden his horizons this summer? Oh, oh. <laughs> I would like him to read the entire shortlist. No, I'd like him to read the entire long list of the Orange Prize for Women's Fiction. Because I've been working my way through it, and I can tell you that would broaden his horizons. It, it broadened mine too. I genuinely think he ought to try and work his way through it. It'd be quite good for him. And now I have a very exciting book-related quiz for you. Um, we don't have any buzzers, obviously, <laughs> because we're poor. But uh, you'll just have to shout out the answer if you know it. So, section one. What former party leader said this was their favourite book? Ulysses by James Joyce. Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Ah, <laughs> Did he? Yeah. yeah. Amazing. <laughs> okay. The new Oxford book of 18th century verse, edited by Roger Lonsdale. Former party leaders. Ah. Oh. William Hay? No, Gordon Brown is the answer. Oh, wonderful man. Oh. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Theresa May? Yes, absolutely. It oh, makes perfect nice. sense. Uh, Marie's thrashing you guys. <laughs> she really is, yes. She is. It's true. <laughs> On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. Oh, David Cameron? David Cameron. David Cameron. <laughs> no, who said what? David Cameron, I got a couple. I, I said David Cameron sang him, and so did Marie, but I got in there first. Yeah, it's sure. not David Cameron then. Oh, <laughs> it's oh, Nick Clegg. Yeah. Um, oh, and yeah. and how about The Prophet, Trotsky, eighteen eighty seven to nineteen forty by Isaac Deutscher. Would it be someone wrote like Tony Blair? <laughs> yes, it is Tony Blair. <laughs> yeah, I think you're good at this. I'm <laughs> really good at this. <laughs> okay, bonus, bonus questions. Bonus question one. What has been the most borrowed book from the House of Commons Library every year since 2008? Is there something like the rules of the House of Commons or, or something like that? <laughs> Very, very good. It's how Parliament works. It's a good book. It's a good book, but there's no pictures. There's no no diagrams and nothing interesting to look at, but it is a good book. <laughs> Whose biography did David Cameron once remove from his bookshelf to much ridicule? 
Puppet oh, matches? No, it was Hitler. <gasps> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker. It has been a, a, a more fun one than usual. I think you'll agree. <laughs> that's a great quiz. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Ahia Shah. Thank you. To Marie Leconte. Thanks for having me. And to our special guest, Thangam Debonair. Thank you for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you can get the podcast early, get our splendid merchandise and access to our live Zooms, one of which is coming up soon. Backers get an honorary salute on the show and here are some now. Best wishes from me to Nikki Neighbour, Georgia A and Rosie Pegg. Many thanks from me to Hayley Gullen, Helen Hayward and Pete Kavanagh. And finally, best wishes from me to Emily Abbott, Hugh Penny and Rob Kinnear. The Bunker was presented by Alexandreou with Marie Leconte and Ahir Shah. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. One audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our intern was Nat Amos theme tune by Kenny Dickinson The Bunker is a Podmasters production <laughs>